0: Uh, Here we're really glad you're here this morning. Also, uh, to our kids, we are glad you you are here in the room with us this morning as well. We love having kids in our services. Um, That for us as a church, what we care most about for the youngest among us is that you grow up to be faithful, unique, compelling, maybe even a little wild disciples of Jesus. And study after study shows that the best way for kids to retain faith into adulthood is that they're a part of the whole church and attend worship with their adults from the earliest ages. And so today, uh, kids, you get to hear what I believe is the central teaching of Jesus. What he hopes is most true of the community that gathers in his name. What he hopes and expects will define us as His community. Uh, So I want to pray for us and then we'll get into that teaching. Let us pray. Uh, God, you are love. You alone in all the universe have given and have been love for all eternity. There has never been a moment in time where you have not been love. The same is not true of us. We have our moments where pride and anger and fear displace our desire to be people of love. and So we need to be taught how to love now. And so help us hear the words of Jesus that we might love as he loved. And we pray this to you, our Father, in your Son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Frederick Beigner once wrote, The love for equals is a human thing, a friend for friend, brother for brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely. The world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing, the love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unloving. This is compassion. And it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail. To rejoice without envy with those who rejoice. The love of the poor for the rich, the black man for the white man. The world is always bewildered by its saints. And then there is love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you, but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer. This is God's love. It conquers the world. Love for your enemy conquers the world. That's what Jesus is getting at here in his sermon on the plane in Luke 6. Now, we're doing one sermon, or we're doing many sermons on one sermon. And as I said uh, last week, this one sermon, Jesus is a- addressing the three most foundational questions any teacher addresses Who is well off? Who are the lucky among us? That was the Travis Kelsey Taylor Swift reference, in case you forgot. Who is well off? What is a good person? And how do you become a good person? What is a good person? Jesus now begins to address that question. And his answer is, a good person is a person who loves. And that's not surprising. We would expect any teacher to say that. The kids, I cannot imagine your teacher, whether at your elementary school or if it's your parents because you're homeschooled, would ever say to you, you don't have to love to be a good person. We all know that. But Jesus defines love in a way that no teacher ever defined love. Love your enemies. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. A good person loves their enemies. And Jesus points out, it's not hard to love those who already love you. That's not Jesus' love. That's not love in the way of Jesus. Love in the way of Jesus is love for enemies. That what makes us distinct as Christians, as people who follow Jesus, the founding vision of his community, of this community as a church, is that we love those who do not love us. We give to those who take from us. And we offer compassion to those who do us harm. And I know that raises a lot of questions. um, And I only have time to address two this morning. So let me build this time around two questions. How do you love your enemies? And why should we love our enemies? First, how do we love our enemies? A few weeks ago, I got a text message from... Someone I had not heard from in a very long time. And he asked me if he could call me and we could talk on the phone. He was a person I once uh, greatly trusted and someone I respected. He was the person who, when we learned our son had muscular dystrophy, prayed one of the most powerful prayers I have ever experienced. I have never forgotten that moment of being prayed for by him. And it will forever be one of the most spiritually powerful moments of my life. But a few years after that moment, this friend became an enemy. And a person I once trusted did great harm to my family without a hint of sorrow or repentance. And now he wants to talk. So how do you love your enemies? And I'm gonna start here. To love your enemies, you must name your enemy. I'm not saying have an enemies list. Pictures of people in your basement. That's creepy and will get you arrested, so don't do that. What I am saying is if you live long enough, you will have people that will harm you, that will wound you. But that's not what makes them an enemy. We all harm each other. We're all sinners. We're all like bowling balls of knives, rolling around, just proking and prodding and bothering and harming one another. So just because someone does harm to you doesn't make them an enemy. What does is when they harm you and don't care. They wound you and blame you for it. That wounding could be catastrophic. We've witnessed this on a global scale in the last three weeks. Most of Gaza attacking and celebrating the destruction of Jewish human life. With indifference. That's the most intense version of enemies we can view in this planet. But it also could just be someone in your life who, no matter how many times you've asked them to stop... Ask them to care. Ask them to listen to you. They refuse. There's no empathy from them. There's no shame from them, even when you expose or name the ways they have treated you. There's no goodness they seek to bring into your life. They're totally unmoved by your inner world. They do not respect your boundaries. As a wise counselor once said to me, they do not treat you like you are a real human being. And Jesus gives a really helpful illustration here. He asks you to imagine love as money. So he says this in verse 30 and verse 34 Give to everyone who begs from you. From one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. In verse 34, if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. This is what I think Jesus is getting at. Take my wife, uh, Misty, for example. She's easy for me to love. There's an amazing return on my investment. She gives back. Uh, Her joy, her generosity, her goodness. Uh, She's easy to love because I get significant entrance back. I give her $10 of love, she gives me $1,000 back. I get rich very quickly. But there are other people. Whatever I give, nothing is coming back. Everything will be taken a good word of kindness given. And the response will be to tell me all the things that I should have done. To ask someone to stop doing something wrong and instead they tell you, well, it's your fault. And they shame you and seek to introduce wounds into you. Who are those people in your life? I'm saying it's, it's okay to name them. And I realize for many of us that may Make you deeply uncomfortable. I'm kind of uncomfortable with what I'm saying. Uh, But Jesus says, Love your enemies, which requires us knowing who our enemies are in the first place. And you cannot love what you have not named. I think that was good enough. I'm going to say it a second time. You cannot love what you have not named. And what I mean is, if you're trying to love an enemy like they are your friend, you're going to go crazy. You're going to expose yourself to greater harm. You're going to have to love an enemy differently than how you would love a friend. And naming someone that they've wounded you is not a rejection of loving them. It's actually preparing you to love them. By naming the harm, the abuse, the wounding they have caused you, you're becoming a real person, which makes you more likely to actually love them in a profound, powerful, and Jesus-centered way. And this is the way that Christian and psychologist Dan Allender put it. I do not believe forgiveness involves forgetting the past and ignoring the damage of past or present harm. To do so, even if it were possible, would be tantamount to erasing one's personal history and the work of God in the midst of our journey. The only way for the forgive and forget mentality to be practiced. Is through radical denial, deception, or pretense. Jesus here is inviting you to name. Look at verse 27. When you have been hated. Verse 28. Those who when you've been cursed, verse 28, when you've been abused, you name it not to become a person of hate. But you name it, to have God enter into your history and personhood and to begin to write a new story of love in and through you. And that will never happen in an environment where the, the vision of love is forget. Because then your whole person doesn't get, it, get to enter into the picture. That's not love. And so how do you love your enemy? First, you name your enemy. Second, to love your enemy, you must revoke Revenge. The moment something, someone does something that harms us, we want revenge. It's why if I was to say the phrase, revenge is a dish best served, everyone knows how that line ends. And yet, what does Jesus say for us to do to those who harm us? Verse 27, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, do good, bless, and pray. That's not revenge. There's no retaliation in those words. And I believe this is the most difficult part of loving your enemies, is revoking revenge and turning it to doing good, blessing, and and praying. Uh, Because it's really hard to know when the difference is between when I'm seeking justice and when I'm seeking revenge. Because this is not a passage that invites us to uh, forget what people have done and not seek consequences or accountability. What Jesus is saying here is that if you have been wounded uh, and been wrong, he's not saying don't seek justice. What he's saying is don't seek revenge. And there's a difference. So what is that difference? Well, my best way of pointing out that difference. Two thoughts. First, we are seeking justice, not revenge, when our primary motivation is love. And the best example I've seen of this in recent history is Rachel Denhollander's impact statement at the trial of Larry Nasser. She was one of his many victims. She was a woman of deep Christian conviction, and she sought accountability for Nasser's abuse. She sought to put him behind prison for what he had done. But she sought justice out of a deep love. And so in the midst of her statements in Nasser in court, she said these words. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. She genuinely hopes her abuser experiences the forgiveness of God, without erasing any of her history. And that's loving your enemies. When your pursuit of justice includes your primary motivation as being one of love, they would leave their wickedness and know the God of true love. Second, uh, we are seeking justice, not revenge, when we flee from nursing our anger. So back to that text I got from that person. After his initial wounding of me in my times of silence, there had been many moments where I had thought about how I could get even, be vindicated. In my sleepless nights on my bed, I would long for the day when he could experience what he put me through. And in those moments, I felt something happening to me. Something best put to to words by the author I started with, Frederick Biegner, who wrote, Of all the deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips, over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue, the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last morsel both the pain you are giving and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is what you're wolfing down as yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. And I knew in in those moments of longing for revenge, I was only devouring myself. And so long before I got that text from him, I had forsaken any desire of getting back. And I will tell you, it has been one of the hardest pieces of discipleship Jesus has ever led me through. To move from revenge to praying for blessing and goodness to enter your enemy's life is the most profound and deepest part of your discipleship to Jesus you will ever experience. But it's hard. To love your enemy, you must revoke revenge. Third, to love your enemy, give good gifts. Now, one of the worst things we do to Jesus' teachings often is, is interpret them hyper-literally. Right? So Jesus says, uh, if anyone slaps you on one cheek, turn, him, turn to him the other also. And we can all say, that's never happened to me. I've obeyed this teaching. I've, I've turned the, the cheek every time. Or he says, uh, Give, uh, if someone takes your cloak, don't withhold your tunic. And you're like, I don't even know what a cloak is, but no one's taken one from me. And I don't have a tunic, so I've never been able to give one away. But that's not Jesus' point. He's not giving you hyper literal teachings to obey. I love the way, again, Dan Allender speaks of what Jesus is saying in this passage. He, he writes The calling of every Christian is to prophetically live out a disruptive goodness. I'm going to come back to that phrase a disruptive goodness that embraces foolishness before the wise and weakness before the strong. To do otherwise. To live merely for another paycheck or summer vacation is to live for legitimate desires that never attain the dignity and honor of our highest calling. He's saying our highest calling, and I believe that's true because my my reading of Jesus is he's saying this is the teaching that defines my people more than any other, is that we love our enemies. We live out a prophetic, disruptive goodness that looks foolish to the world because we love our enemies. And think about Jesus. He did this. Think about his own creative expressions of disruptive goodness. The religious leaders were always judging Jesus on the Sabbath for how he was doing the Sabbath. So what does he do? He keeps setting up healing moments on the Sabbath and introduces disruptive goodness into his story. Or Jesus, one day, strolls into Jericho, and what does he do? He invites himself into the home of everyone's enemy. Zacchaeus. And he floods Zacchaeus' life with so much disruptive goodness, Zacchaeus gives half of his income away and commits himself to a new life of justice. And that's foolish to go dine at the house of the enemy of everybody. But Jesus does it because he lives out a creative disruptive goodness. And that's what Jesus is saying here is not literally turn the other cheek or literally give your tunic when someone takes your cloak. He's saying you should have fresh creative expressions of doing good to your enemies that are lived out of your discipleship to Jesus and will look differently depending on who and what your enemies are. And that feels maybe like way too far down the road for you. And so if that feels too far down the road, just do what Jesus says here, two things. Pray for your enemies and ask God to bless them If you do those two things, that will change your life. What God will do to you in that space of prayer will utterly change who you are. So give good gifts. Love your enemies. And then fourth and finally, uh, to love your enemy, hunger for redemption. Now, if it's not clear yet, and it it should be, but I want to make it explicitly clear, I am basically attributing this entire sermon, or at least the first point, to, to Dan Allender in his book, Bold Love. It's the best thing I've ever written on how to love, especially your enemies. And so I want to offer one last quote from, from Dan, who says, uh, To deaden hope is to lose the hunger for heaven and the joy of one's own salvation." So I, I do not name my enemy to cast them into a category of hopeless judgment. No, I know God can restore any relationship. And that expectation de- like defines my whole life. God can do anything with anyone. And so I agreed to talk to the person who texted me. And that conversation happened a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we exchanged our normal how-are-yous. I said very little. And then he got right to it. And he said, Tim, the reason I wanted to talk to you was to say, I'm sorry. And then he began to name all of the things he had done to me and my family. And as he was speaking, I, I felt the years of struggle and prayer, of hoping for this moment. And I just lost it. I wept. The problem was, I was sitting at a Starbucks. (laughs) Right by the drive-thru. So all these people would have seen this weeping, bald man, and I can't imagine what they were thinking. (laughs) But I I didn't do anything to make that happen. It was all the work of Jesus in his life. And I had prayed that. Lord, bring blessing into his life such that he might be able to receive what he's done to me and we can be reconciled. And God did all of that without me. And so I don't know who your enemies are or what they've done to you. And it's probably far worse than what this person had done to me. But never give up hope. That God could work in their lives and prepare a feast of redemption you could never imagine. Just don't take the call at Starbucks. So that that's how you love your enemies. But it's really hard. This is the hard, if you embrace this teaching and I'll be honest, I think a lot of us don't. But if you embrace this teaching, this will be the most painful part of your discipleship to Jesus. To love those who do harm, abuse and curse you. So why should you do it? Why should we love our enemies? Now, I was preparing for this sermon a few weeks ago, and it was actually the time when Hamas attacked Israel, and watching that made me face um, what we have to face in this passage. Is what, is what Jesus is saying here, even realistic. How can we take Jesus seriously, given the world we actually live in? Why should we love our enemies when we live in a world like this? And so I've heard a lot of Christians respond to this passage by saying, well, Jesus' words are not relevant to state powers, so state powers have... Right of retaliation, and, and that's true, but I've heard that interpretations justify so much state violence and war, I, I'm still uncomfortable with it. Even though I, it's, it's correct, state has the right of, of wielding the sword for justice, but often, perhaps most of the time, that's not what actually happens. And so there are moments when love of enemies actually requires intervention, when justice demands Defense of the vulnerable. Justice demands protection against the people and nations committed to genocide, violence, or harming the innocent. But I believe that's always the last and regrettable step. And it's almost always about the protection of other people, not myself. And certainly not taking up violence to do it in the name of Jesus. The Bible's clear on that front. People come for you in persecution. We do not take up arms in defense of our faith. And so, given the real world we live in, why would we give up a life of revenge and retaliation? Why commit yourself to loving your enemies? And really, the only why in this passage is verse 36 Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Now we're going to spend a lot of time on that verse because it it leads into next week as well. Uh, But why do we love our enemies? Because God is our Father and he is merciful. And so Jesus is inviting you to consider what does God do with his enemies? And Paul tells us in Romans 5, For while we, this is Romans 5, verse 6, for while we, all human beings, he's speaking about here, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though for perhaps a good person, one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if while we were his enemies... And I'm going to cut the verse there. God, or Paul, uh, God through the Apostle Paul, refers to us as God's enemies. Now, we try to resist this. We try to think of ourselves as basically good people, whom God owes a good life and his blessing. We're anything but his enemies. We're not perfect. No one would say that. But surely we are not his enemies. And yet the Bible says we are his enemies. And also, do you, do you know what I consider most true of people who I would name as, as enemies to me? It's that they don't care about the, the harm they've caused me. It's like I don't exist. They say and do whatever they want, even if it cause, causes harm to me and to others. And if our response to God is, God's saying to us, I loved you, even though you are my enemy, if we respond by saying, I'm not your enemy, What I'm doing is really not that bad. In fact, do you know what these other people are doing? How could you call me your enemy? That's how enemies talk to me. Reducing the harm they have caused. Ignoring the damage I'm trying to introduce. And when when God says through Paul in Romans 5, you are my enemies. If we push that back on to God, that's exactly what enemies do. And we also have to be honest with ourselves. We've taken our lives, lives God gave us, the bodies God gave us, and we use them to introduce harm and wounding into other people's lives. We filled his good world with injustice, with greed, with violence and corruption. And the brutal truth for me is when I think about my enemies, uh, while I have, to the best of my ability throughout my life, tried to always make right what I have made wrong in the world, I have still wounded others. I have still failed others, and I continue to do so, even though I never want to. And so when I look at my enemies, if I'm I'm honest, the real reason I hate my enemies is I see myself in them. So what does God do with his enemies? What does he do with me? What does he do with you? Well, let's finish Romans 5. If while we were his enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? What does God do with his enemies? His son dies for them. And God tells me to love my enemies because that is the way he loved me. That is what love is. A good person loves like God. And God loves his enemies. But this does introduce a problem. A problem that the mystic Catherine of Siena understood. She wrote that that you and I cannot love God the way he has loved us. Right? God is not our enemy. He's only done good to us. So we can't love God with enemy love because he's not our enemy. We actually can't truly love God in the way that love is. as is defined by Jesus here. That's the experience she has. And so Catherine had an experience of God saying this to her. And and God says to her, you cannot love me the way that I love you, which is true. We cannot love God the way that he loved us. We made him our enemy. We took the lives he gave us and used them to do what we want with them. And so we can never return the love that God has given to us. There's only one way You, you and I can love the way God loves us, and that is when we love our enemies. And so God says this to Catherine. This is why I have put you among your neighbors, so you can do for them what you cannot do for me. That is, love them without any concern for thanks and without looking for any profit for yourself. And whatever you do for them, I will consider done for me. When you love your enemies, you're tapping into the heart of love in the universe The love that defines the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The love that defines the cross. Jesus was nailed to a tree to forgive his enemies. And he said, while nailed to that tree, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they are doing. And then Jesus rose from the dead, not to take vengeance on his enemies, on all who abandoned him and murdered him, but to say, I can still give you resurrection life. And so that means we Christians can say to any person, no matter what they have done or where they are in life, God loves you because God loves his enemies. And maybe, just maybe, they will believe God loves them. They will believe God loves his enemies because they see us loving ours. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.